it's Easter weekend, and how are you celebrating Easter? You know, we come up to these kinds of days and we talk about what we're going to do and how we're going to do it. How are you planning to celebrate Easter? Well, it's a good question. We need to talk about celebration and a whole lot more related to Easter. I'm Pastor Rick Stevens, and this is Faith Is, where we challenge each other, we stretch each other in God's direction, and we understand faith as absolute confidence in the trustworthiness of God. Now, we all understand that's not all there is to say about faith. But I have discovered that when we think about faith as developing confidence in God, it stretches us in his direction, and it helps us put real concrete understandings of what it means to have faith. And so I want to encourage you, ask yourself, do you have confidence in God? Do you have confidence that God is trustworthy? Do you have confidence that whatever happens, you can trust him? I guess the bottom line is, do you have absolute confidence in the trustworthiness of God? And resurrection helps with that, doesn't it? Well, of course it does. Well, how are you celebrating Easter? You know, we make our plans, and um, I found out recently our son and his wife and daughter are coming over on Easter Sunday. We'll probably have a Sunday dinner. That's always nice. Well, I don't know what we're going to have to eat, but you probably have some plans for an Easter dinner. I guess I've always heard that ham is the traditional Easter meal. I'm afraid we haven't been very traditional at our house. I had an idea for a Easter dinner this time around, and and I mentioned it, but I was very quick to say, I'm pretty sure not everybody's going to like it, so maybe we better have something else. So I don't know what we're going to have, but we're going to have a meal, and we're going to celebrate and remember Easter. I've been uh, celebrating a little bit in advance. Maybe you have too, because my wife put out a container of uh, jelly beans. And so frequently, I've done it already today, Frequently, I'll go past that jar of jelly beans and grab a few. And, and that's kind of unusual for me because I'm not usually attracted to jelly beans. I don't know why they were interesting to me, but it's a celebration. It's only this time of the year that we ever think about them. So I thought, well, why not? Call it my guilty pleasure if you want to. Although, I have to tell you, I don't feel a bit guilty about having a few jelly beans. Now, some people, they celebrate Easter with chocolate bunnies and colored eggs, and all of that's good because all of those things really are intended to help us remember that this is a special day. Not special because of chocolate bunnies or baby chicks and nothing like that. It's special because it's, it's the pivotal event in all of human history, and we should celebrate. I sometimes think, and I don't know this for sure, that that people mix all these other things into Easter because they maybe don't want to deal with the reality that resurrection changes everything. And if we can pretend it's about colored eggs and Easter bunnies, then maybe we can get past the challenge of resurrection. Well, we don't want to um, get past that challenge. We don't want to be reluctant to embrace Easter. We want to plunge right into it. But maybe you are reluctant. Maybe you are kind of, how, how should I say, holding Christian faith at arm's length, perhaps. Maybe you're just not sure you're ready to, to go all in on absolute confidence in the trustworthiness of God. Maybe you don't even want to, to follow Jesus. 
And I guess the question for that is simply this. What if it's true? What if it's true that Jesus lived, died, rose again, lives forever, will come back? What if it's true? What do you do about that? And if it is true, what's holding you back? I don't think a lot of people wrestle with these kinds of questions seriously. I think we try to get past them when we're uncomfortable with them. But what if it's true? And if it is true, and a lot of people who believe it's true still don't want to change their life because of it. And maybe you're one of them. Maybe you're saying, well, I hope it's not true because I want to live this way. Or, yeah, I, I believe it's true, but I don't, I don't think I'm ready to give up what I know I'll have to give up to follow Jesus. Well, this day's for you because you need to wrestle with those important questions. And this idea of what if it's true makes so much difference. There was a man you may have heard of named Bertrand Russell. He was an atheist and uh, he wrote this, nothing matters and nothing has meaning. All the labors of the ages, all the devotion, all the inspiration, all the noonday brightness of human genius must inevitably be buried beneath the debris of a universe in ruins. Wow, that's really pessimistic, and it's obvious he didn't have much faith. Except now, Mr. Russell is dead, and he knows the truth about things. And one day, we will all know the truth as fully as we are known today. And so I want to challenge us to think seriously about this whole idea. What if it's true? And, and we wrestle with this in different ways, all of us do, and, and we, we struggle to embrace it. But I want you to think about it here from this perspective. Now, this is a quote. It's not something I came up with. It's a quote from someone who wrote about it in a newsletter, and he was quoting a friend of his who was quoting a friend of his. So I'm pretty sure this is an accurate quote that somebody said, but since I'm so far removed, I'm reluctant to, to name them lest I get it wrong. But the important part is not who said it. The important part is what he said. This Christian writer put it this way. If Jesus didn't come back from the dead, nothing else matters. If Jesus did come back from the dead, nothing else matters. Now think about that. If you're struggling, if you're wondering about Easter, and if you're just searching for a way to have a, a more well-founded faith or a more grounded confidence in the trustworthiness of God, if Jesus didn't come back from the dead, nothing else matters. In fact, the Bible's pretty clear about that. And that and it's true. In, in 1 Corinthians 15, a couple of verses just for you to think about. The writer is writing to the Corinthian church, and in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 17, he says this, If Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile, and you are still in your sins. So it puts the whole foundation of everything on the resurrection of Jesus. If Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile, and you are still in your sins. Hmm. So what was the quote that I read a minute ago? If Jesus didn't come back from the dead, nothing else matters. And there we go. That's kind of reflected in that verse. But two verses later, he says something else that challenges us. If for this life only we have hoped in Christ, we are of all people most to be pitied. 
If for this life only we have hoped in Christ, we are of all people most to be pitied. See, he's putting it very bluntly that if Jesus didn't come back from the dead, nothing else matters. And if Jesus did come back from the dead, nothing else matters. So you see, it's really pivotal. And if I don't say it another time, let's make sure we understand it right here. All of Christian faith rises or falls on the resurrection of Jesus. If Jesus came back from the dead, overcame our worst enemy, death, and lives forever with the Father, then it's true. He validates everything in the Bible. And people have been trying to tear down the resurrection of Jesus for a long time and have been unable to do so. No in- amount of intellectual rigor has been able to stop people from believing that Jesus is alive. And take it from me if you want. You don't have to take it from me. There's lots of other evidence, by the way. But Jesus is alive. It's real. It's true. And it makes all the difference now and forever. Now, one of the things that that we do at Easter, especially around the churches where I've been, and I've I've paid more attention to it when I was responsible for the music years ago. That was my responsibility in the churches I serve. But even now, I'm actively involved in the music that we sing and that we choose for celebrations. And, And as you know, I have been counting down on the podcast over the last few weeks our churches, hymns that every Christian should know. We went through a little bit of a process, nothing particularly scientific, but we tried to narrow it down and help come to a good conclusion about the 10 hymns every Christian should know. Not our favorite hymns, but the hymns we thought every Christian should know. And we've been counting them down. Number 10 was Jesus Loves Me. Number 9, Christ the Lord is Risen Today, and that's a great one. We're going to sing that on Sunday. Number eight, holy, holy, holy. Number seven, what a friend we have in Jesus. Number six, a mighty fortress is our God. And I didn't plan it this way. I wish I could say I did. Wish I was that clever. I'm just not, but God helps me in ways that I don't deserve. And so this week's hymn in our countdown, number five, Because He Lives. Now, a lot of people recognize that just simply by the title. It's the most remarkable song. It really is remarkable. And some people will argue it's a song, not a hymn. We took a generous approach to that in our list when we decided hymns every Christian should know. And I said to people when we did it, I said, you write down what you think, and we're not going to be too fussy about a specific musical definition of things. We're just going to take what what you give us and use it. And so we did, Because He Lives. Now, you may remember that song. You may have sung it. We're singing it in church on Sunday. Absolutely. And it's a simple song. Musically, I suppose a musician might say there's not much to it. Uh, The lyrics are rather simple, straightforward poetry. But you put those two together, and wow, this song communicates. It has touched people's hearts in ways that are really difficult to describe. And And if you're familiar with it, you know what I'm talking about. If you're not, let me just tell you a little bit about this this song and how it came to pass. You probably, if you're familiar with it, know that it was written by Bill and Gloria Gaither. 
Now, Bill and Gloria Gaither have been longtime singer-songwriters in the church music world. They've been hugely influential. They've been, it seems like, literally everywhere. And yet, they are regularly recognized as just kind of down-to-earth people. They don't put on big uh, egos or, hey, look at me ideas or attitudes or anything like that. In fact, they were... They were pretty big in the music world many years ago when our children were smaller. I think my daughter was in high school at the time. And we happened to be visiting Indiana. We were kind of planning our vacation. Had several things we were going to do, and I don't remember what all of them were. But one of them was we were going to to go to Marion, Indiana, where my parents lived at the time. And so we were talking about music and different things. And and, uh, I don't know how it came up. I may have mentioned it. I just don't know. But I mentioned that well, we're going to be close. Would you like to go down and see where Bill and Gloria Gaither live and see the studio where they record music? And my daughter thought that would be really cool. And I'm not sure whether everybody else thought it was as cool as she did. I had been there a couple of times. I'd been through Alexandria, which is where they lived. And I understand they live yet today. And, and so I'd seen the building. I'd stopped at the little store that they have there. Uh, I think that my first encounter with that area was with a friend who who was either braver than I or had connections. I'm not sure which, but we stopped at the studio one time and walked in and just kind of looked around. And they were busy doing some things, making a recording, and I don't remember much about it, but it seemed quite friendly and accessible. I remember when I one of my first thoughts was when we were driving south on the road through Alexandria, and at Alexandria as far as I can tell, it was really small. What I've seen of it, there wasn't even a, a, a there wasn't even a stop sign. Now, there may be more to the town, probably is, than I've seen. But anyway, when I was driving through, that's what I saw. And somebody pointed out, yeah, we're behind those trees there. That's where Bill and Gloria Gaither live. And I thought that was most amazing. I don't remember saying anything at the time, but I thought that's most amazing, that they just live here like normal people here in Indiana. and And they do. Well, this vacation, we were driving down through that same road and we stopped in because I thought I'd just kind of let my daughter see the, and and I think my parents were with us, my wife and my son as well. And we went in, we were just kind of looking around a little bit and not causing any big commotion. There wasn't much going on. I couldn't tell that there was really anything going on. And all of a sudden the door opened and out walked a guy. And right away I recognized it was Bill Gaither. And I thought, whoa, this is really something. And he walked up and said hello, and and you know I I was so so pleased and impressed that he greeted greeted us, greeted my daughter, and he was just as down to earth and as kind and as as friendly as you could imagine from seeing him on some of his presentations at his concerts or maybe on television, and I was really glad my family got a chance to to meet him and to and to talk with him like that. I've never met Gloria Gaither. I heard her speak one time but I've never met her. But my impression is from everything that I've known about them is they're just folks like the rest of us. And yet God has blessed them and helped them do some amazing things. And this one song has had such an amazing impact. And I went looking into the song and see if I could find out about its origins. And I discovered that, that Bill and Gloria thought pretty much what a lot of us have thought at one time or another in our lives. It was in the late 60s, and they were 
just living life, doing what they normally do, would do. They, they had two children. Uh, one was four and one was three months old. You can imagine that household was busy. If you've been a mother, you can imagine the fatigue that goes with caring for two young children. And uh, quite unexpectedly, they found out they were going to have another baby. And when all the fatigue and all the work and all that stuff, that just seemed like a lot. And it does to a lot of us who have been in those situations. On top of that, Bill had been ill with mononucleosis for a while. And he was really physically depleted because that disease does make you particularly tired. And with any disease that goes on or any illness that goes on for a while, he experienced his share of depression, depression and feeling blue and discouraged and all that stuff. Some other family issues and their extended family added to the problems. And you mix all of that in with the issues of the day, the Vietnam War, the racial tensions that were apparent in those days. A lot of drug abuse was coming to, to light and people were, were becoming more aware of it. And they, like a lot of parents, look around at the world and say, wow, what kind of world are we bringing our children into? And Gloria said, quote, Bill and I would sit and talk about all the circumstances of the world and the discouragement he was going through. We would wind up looking at each other and saying, if the world is like this now, what will it be in 15 or 20 years? What will this child have to face? Well, that's a question that just hangs in the air sometimes for many of us. They go on to tell the story that um, some friends helped and Bill began to get better. And she described it this way. Physically and spiritually, he saw a growing ray of light in the darkness. Now, keep in mind, their situation hadn't really changed, but they had begun to see things differently. And that same year, it was springtime, and, and Bill's father had been out in the parking lot. They had just had a, a, an area graded and paved, and so they were out there looking at the parking lot, and, and Bill's father came in and, and said to them, come outside, I want to show you something. Well, they knew the parking lot had been paved, but they went out, and he walked out there and pointed down at the pavement and said, look, there. And they looked. And pushing up through all the layers of stone, sand, blacktop was a tiny blade of green grass. And Bill's father's name was George, and Gloria described it this way, quote, George just grinned and walked back into the office, leaving us there to marvel at this amazing story of Easter from a tiny blade of grass. It was confirming a truth that had been pushing its way to the surface of our souls. Life wins. And they went on to write this amazing song, Because He Lives, and it has literally touched the lives of countless people. I, I don't know if we could ever begin to count how many people have been touched by this amazing, amazing, simple song. And I want to tell you something that Bill said about this song when he wrote it. Uh, that by now, they'd had their son, and, and life was getting back to whatever could be called normal. That's true for a lot of us, don't you think? How do we really know what normal is sometimes? But uh, anyway, life was going on. And uh, so about the time he was writing it, Bill explained it this way. He said, quote, For whatever reason, in a lot of my writing, I've always asked the question, why is this song going to make a difference? 
And in this song, I wanted to say that because of the theological absolute around which I have built my life, which is the truth of the resurrection, I can face tomorrow, no matter what it brings. I wanted to make that statement so strong that the guy in the street could take that with him through whatever difficult circumstances he was walking through. Because he lives, I can face tomorrow. Because he lives, all fear is gone. I believe that Christ is freedom. End of quote. And now all these years later, the song was copyrighted in 1971, might even be in your hymnal at church, if your church still uses a hymnal. It's in our hymnal. All these years later, that song continues to remind us that we can have confidence in God's trustworthiness. We can have confidence that because of resurrection, because Jesus lives, we can face tomorrow. I particularly in these days like that line in there, that because he lives, all fear is gone. We live in such an age when people are so afraid of things. And I know there's a lot of things to be concerned about. There are circumstances in our world that are very troubling. I get that. That's just true. But I'll tell you what is even more true. And that is because Jesus lives, we can face tomorrow. He is there in all of life's tomorrows and he has not abandoned us and he will not abandon us. He is with us and he will see us through. So let's just go over the words to this song that they crafted. It has three stanzas and, and one of them you'll particularly appreciate when you realize that they started thinking about all of this when they were anticipating the birth of another baby and what it would be like to bring that baby into the world. But three rather simple stanzas and a chorus. But what a combination of tune, and by the way, Bill Gaither did write the tune, what a combination of tune and text. I often remind myself that, that hymns, songs, are nothing until they're sung, until that tune and that text come alive together. So anyway, here's the words to remind you, or maybe if you haven't heard it for the first time, if you've never heard the song, go find it. It's everywhere. I wonder how many people have recorded it over time. You can find a version you like, I'm sure. Here it goes. God sent his son. They called him Jesus. He came to love, heal, and forgive. He lived and died to buy my pardon. An empty grave is there to prove my Savior lives. Because he lives, I can face tomorrow. Because he lives, all fear is gone. Because I know he holds the future. And life is worth the living just because he lives. How sweet to hold a newborn baby and feel the pride and joy he gives. But greater still, the calm assurance this child can face uncertain days because he lives. Because he lives, I can face tomorrow. Because he lives, all fear is gone. Because I know he holds the future, and life is worth the living just because he lives. And then one day, I'll cross the river. I'll fight life's final war with pain. And then, as death gives way to victory, I'll see the lights of glory, and I'll know he reigns. Because he lives, I can face tomorrow. Because he lives, all fear is gone. Because I know he holds the future, 
as life is worth the living just because he lives. I guess it's fair to pause at this point and say, if you've been struggling with something, then take heart by that truth that that song communicates. Life is worth the living just because he lives. Don't give up. It's no time to despair. It's no time to give up. Because Jesus lives, everything falls into place. Everything begins to make sense. And I want you to experience that as well. I want you to have that that same sense of understanding. And maybe this is a good point. We've got several more things that I think we need to talk about. Maybe this is a point, a good point for us to go back to that Easter story before we continue on and read the story. And I want to read it from the Gospel of John, chapter 20. And it's not a long portion, 18 verses. But John tells us the story of the resurrection of Jesus like this. Set the stage, Jesus died on Good Friday. They buried him. What we call Saturday was Sabbath and still is called Sabbath. And so everything stopped because they have Sabbath observance. And so this takes place on the first day of the week. John chapter 20, verse 1. Early on the first day of the week, while it was still dark, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb and saw that the stone had been removed from the tomb. So she ran and went to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one whom Jesus loved, and said to them, They have taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we do not know where they have laid him. Then Peter and the other disciple set out and went toward the tomb. The two were running together, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. He bent down to look in and saw the linen wrappings lying there, but he did not go in. Then Simon Peter came, following him, and went into the tomb. He saw the linen wrappings lying there and the cloth that had been on Jesus' head, not lying with the linen wrappings, but rolled up in a place by itself. Then the other disciple who reached the tomb first also went in, and he saw and believed. For as yet they did not understand the scripture, that he must rise from the dead. Then the disciples returned to their homes. But Mary stood weeping outside the tomb. As she wept, she bent over to look into the tomb, and she saw two angels in white sitting where the body of Jesus had been lying, one at the head and the other at the feet. They said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? She said to them, They have taken away my Lord, and I do not know where they have laid him. When she had said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing there, but she did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you looking for? Supposing him to be the gardener, she said to him, Sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have laid him, and I will take him away. Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned and said to him in Hebrew, in Hebrew, Rabboni, which means teacher. Jesus said to her, Do not touch me, because I have not yet ascended to the Father, but go to my brothers and say to them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. Mary Magdalene went and announced to the disciples, I have seen the Lord. And she told them, that he had said these things to her. Quite a powerful story, and it's amazing on many levels. I don't know that we can 
can or need to get into all of them, but, um, you know, one of the questions that stands out to me is the question Jesus said to her, you know, there she was at the tomb. She didn't really know what's going on. She thinks someone has taken the body of Jesus away. She sees angels and still doesn't quite know what's going on. And, and they said to her, verse 13, woman, why are you weeping? She said, well, they've taken away my Lord. I don't know where they've laid him. Well, you know, it seems to me maybe at this point in our conversation today, we should ask each other, why are you weeping? What makes you downcast, downhearted? What makes you sad? I'm Pastor Rick, and we'll be back in just a moment. The Wellness Company shares your values and fights for medical freedom. They put patients before profits and follow medical science, not political science like doctors on the left. Their chief medical board, which includes Dr. Peter McCullough, are the makers of the incredible American-made, high-quality spike formula. If you worry about spike proteins, go to TWC.health and use promo code OUTLOUD for an exclusive discount. Once again, that's TWC.health, promo code OUTLOUD. You already know Genesis plus HOCL is your best defense against viruses. But did you also know it's the most powerful weapon for eliminating airborne mold too? Customers are raving about the Genesis Fogger's ability to tackle mold problems and the bad smells that go with them. And we all know mold is a hazard to your health. There's no airborne invader that Genesis can't handle. Visit genesisfogger.com forward slash out loud to receive a 15% discount on the Genesis Fogger with promo code OUTLOUD. With Genesis, you're ready for anything. We wouldn't go a day without washing our hands, brushing our teeth, and washing our nose. Well, wait, we wash our nose? Yes, the number one place where bacteria, viruses, and pollen enter the body is through the nose. So the average person breathes over 23,000 times a day. That's 23,000 opportunities for bacteria, viruses, and irritants to get into your nose and make you sick. For an extra layer of protection, wash your nose with Clear. That is Clear, X-L-E-A-R. Clear's drug-free nasal spray features xylitol, an ingredient proven to block adhesion of many nasty bacteria and viruses, and effectively clean, not just rinse like a saline, but wash your nose. Clear nasal spray quickly alleviates congestion, opens your airway, and ensures your body's natural defenses are strong. Read the research studies for yourself at clear.com. That's X-L-E-A-R.com. Protect yourself from the pathogens and junk you breathe. Pick up a bottle for you and your family today. We are fighting the ultimate fight between good and evil. AmericaOutloud.com replaces groupthink with innovative things. Well, it was Walt Whitman, the poet, who said, Keep your face always toward the sunshine, and shadows will fall behind you. America Out Loud Talk Radio. Liberty and justice for all. Well, it's the same story, and I'm sticking to it. Because he lives, I can, you can, we all can face tomorrow. The, the resurrection of Jesus just makes the difference in everything. It validates everything about Christian faith. Because if Jesus did not rise again, 
That's the end. But if he did, oh boy, that's the beginning of everything. And we live our lives in the knowledge of that and in the expectant hope that one day everything's going to be made right because he lives. I can face tomorrow. Because he lives, all fear is gone. Because I know he holds the future. Life is worth the living because he lives. A lot of things that help us understand that. And, and one of the great things is the testimony of Billy Graham. Billy Graham has been with the Lord for a number of years now, but he was quite the evangelist and God used him in ways that I don't see anybody being used today. There may be some that I'm not aware of, but, but Billy Graham just touched the lives of millions, maybe billions of people around the globe. Thanks to the blessing of God and, and God's giftedness to him. We give thanks for that. And uh, Billy Graham was asked one time to, to attend a, a luncheon in his honor at, in his native city of Charlotte, North Carolina. It was a month before his 92nd birthday, and they wanted to honor him, and they told him they didn't expect him to give a big, long address to them. They just wanted to honor him, and he didn't really seem to want to do that, but finally agreed, and he did manage to say a few words in the context of that event. And I want to read for you what he said to that gathering that day, quite a number of years ago now. It just speaks with such confidence and hope to the idea of resurrection. Billy Graham's words, and I quote, I'm reminded today of Albert Einstein, the great physicist, who this month has been honored by Time magazine as the man of the century. Einstein was once traveling from Princeton on a train when the conductor came down the aisle, punching the tickets of every passenger. When he came to Einstein, Einstein reached in his vest pocket. He couldn't find his ticket, so he reached in his trouser pockets. It wasn't there. He looked in his briefcase, but couldn't find it. Then he looked in the seat beside him, but still couldn't find it. The conductor said, Dr. Einstein, I know who you are. We all know who you are. I'm sure you bought a ticket. Don't worry about it. Einstein nodded appreciatively. The conductor continued down the aisle, punching tickets. As he was ready to move to the next car, he turned around and saw the great physicist down on his hands and knees, looking under his seat for his ticket. The conductor rushed back and said, Dr. Einstein, Dr. Einstein, don't worry. I know who you are. No problem. You don't need a ticket. I'm sure you bought one. Einstein looked at him and said, Young man, I too know who I am. What I don't know is where I'm going. Billy Graham continued, See the suit I'm wearing? It's a brand new suit. My children and my grandchildren are telling me I've gotten a little slovenly in my old age. I used to be a bit more fastidious. So I went out and bought a new suit for this luncheon and one more occasion. You know what that occasion is? This is the suit in which I'll be buried. But when you hear I'm dead, I don't want you to immediately remember the suit I'm wearing. I want you to remember this. I not only know who I am, I also know where I'm going. And that's the impact of resurrection. We can know who we are. We are his. 
and we can know where we're going because Jesus leads the way because of resurrection. Death is not the end. We live in an age when people are so afraid of dying. People do so many things to keep from dying. And yet God gives us the assurance that because he lives, the future is taken care of. We don't need to be afraid. We can trust him. Perhaps you're still struggling with all of this idea of resurrection and what that means. Perhaps you're feeling a bit like Bill and Gloria Gaither did when they were struggling there in the late 60s, expecting a child, watching the circumstances of the world spiral downward. Perhaps your own circumstances are not what you wish they were. Or perhaps you're doing okay, but there's been something happened in your life at one time or another that just, well, the simple word to say, it just hurt you. But maybe it was more than that. Maybe it was more devastating than simply describing it as hurt. Maybe it was life altering. I have no idea what it might have been. I know many of us, probably most of us have had experiences in life that were shattering in one way or another, some more than others. But they were real and they haven't gone away. But maybe what we've done is we've pushed them down. We've pushed them away. We've tried to forget them. We've lived life past them. And maybe they were some years ago. And, and maybe in a sense, we sealed them up and put them, could we say, in a tomb. And we left them there. They're still there. We still are aware of that. We still think of it from time to time. But we left them there and we are happy to keep them at arm's length at least. Well, consider Mary that we read about. Mary went to the tomb early on that morning before, before daylight. It was still dark. She went to the tomb. Now, we visit cemeteries from time to time for reasons. They visited differently than we do. So it wasn't really surprising that she would have gone to the tomb. That was common in those days. She went to the tomb, the, the site of her, can we say, disappointment? Certainly, they were expecting a lot from Jesus. Can we say that she went there to the site of her deep despair because all of their hopes had been in Jesus, and now they had seen him die. They had helped bury him. It was a site of searing loss for her. And you see, maybe a lot of us have had that kind of disappointment that deep pain, that searing loss, even hopelessness, because what is, what is death but the end? Hope has died. So Mary went there, and, and yet when she got there, she found the tomb was open. And she didn't quite know how to process all of that. And that's understandable. I mean, who among us knows how to process those kinds of things? We would, we would have just as much trouble as they did, and I don't think it's any help for us to beat up on them and say they should have known. But she went to the side of that disappointment, that despair, that deep loss, that searing loss, that hopelessness. And instead of the loss being sealed in a tomb, the tomb was open, and something had happened. And Jesus met her there, 
And yes, the disciples came, two of them, we read about that. They looked in, they went back, and Mary lingered. And someone spoke to her and said her name. We know from the story that someone was Jesus. And he said to her, Mary. He met her there and said, Mary. And I'd like to suggest that Jesus is eager to meet you where you are today and every day. And a guy whose music I have followed for a long time, Derek Johnson, wrote a simple little chorus that he made into an expanded medley of songs and stories. But he linked it to this idea of Jesus turning to Mary and saying her name. The words are simple. No one says your name like Jesus. No one says your name like he does. There's comfort in his word understanding in his voice, no one says your name quite like Jesus. And you know, as you live your life and as you struggle with this, that, or the other thing, I want to encourage you that Jesus, as it were, is saying your name today. And it's really still true that no one says your name like he does. And if you could pause long enough At the sight of your disappointment, anguish, hopelessness, I think if you'll listen carefully, you'll hear him calling your name too. Because he wants to unseal that that root of bitterness, that despair, disappointment, that loss, and make you whole. That's the point of resurrection. One of my favorite stories, the Easter came from many years ago. I listened to Paul Harvey somewhat regularly, not always, but somewhat regularly. And I listened enough to have heard him tell a story every, every year, just before Easter. And I've liked to tell the story. I've used it so many times that I'm not sure if people expect it anymore, but I'm sure if I use it again this time at church, they'll know. And many of them will remember, oh yeah, you keep telling that same story. Well, I tell it because it's, it's exactly what some of us need to hear. I'm sure I can't tell it like Paul Harvey did, but let me take you to Boston. The preacher's name was Dr. S.D. Gordon, and he walked out into his immaculately prepared church on that glorious Easter Sunday morning, walked into that sanctuary with everybody dressed up for Easter and ready to go, and he placed a bent-up, beat-up, rusted old birdcage beside the pulpit, right there in church. Well, the service continued like it normally would, and finally he got up to present the sermon, and he began to tell a story. He talked about how he had been out for a walk in the nice spring day, a little bit blustery, but winter was fading, and he was out enjoying it, and he came upon an unkept, unwashed little boy, about 10 years old, coming up the alley, swinging this old caved-in bird cage with several tiny birds shivering on the floor of the cage. Well, Dr. Gordon stopped and asked the boy about those birds and asked where he got the birds. And the boy said, well, I trapped them. I caught them. They're my birds. Seemed pretty proud of himself. Well, Dr. Gordon could understand that. He knew something about boys that are 10 years old, and he then asked the boy, well, what are you going to do with those birds that that are yours, that you caught? And the boy said, well, 
I'm going to play with them. I'm going to have fun with them. That's why I caught them, so I could have something to play with and have fun. Well, that didn't surprise Dr. Gordon either because that's what boys do. But the preacher knew something else about boys, and so he persisted and he said to the little guy, well, sooner or later, you're going to get tired of those birds. When you get tired of those birds, what are you going to do with them then? Well, the little guy hadn't thought about that. It kind of caused him to pause and to stop and to think. And he did, and he looked, and he thought, and he finally looked up to Dr. Gordon, and he said, I have some cats at home. They like birds. I'll feed them to my cats. Well, again, Dr. Gordon wasn't terribly surprised. That's kind of the way little boys think. But he had a different plan in mind, and so he said to the little guy, Son, how much would you take for those birds? Well, that really caught the little guy off guard. He didn't know what to think about that. It surprised. He hesitated. He thought. Finally, he said, Mister, you don't want these birds. They're just plain old field birds. Uh, they can't sing. They're ugly. You don't, you don't want these birds. Well, the preacher persisted and said to the guy, Well, just tell me, how much do you want? Now, see, the boy had been smarter than maybe he knew in trying to tell the preacher he didn't want him because he's really trying to tell the preacher he wanted him worse. And, well, the little lad, as he was catching up with the whole situation and realizing what he had, he, uh, he thought about it. He, he squinted one eye. He calculated. He hesitated. He didn't want to ask too much. But, you know, if you got a sale here, you want to ask the right amount. So finally, he looked up to the preacher and said, two dollars. Well, to his surprise, Dr. Gordon reached into his pocket, took out his wallet, and handed the boy two $1 bills. Now, the boy thought he had a gold mine. The preacher took the cage, and the boy disappeared quick. I guess he disappeared quick because he didn't want the preacher to change his mind. Well, now that uh, Dr. Gordon had possession of the bird cage and the birds inside, he stepped over between a couple of buildings where it wasn't quite as windy, where the birds had a little better chance of things. And he set the bird cage down and knelt down in the alley there beside the building and opened the door of the cage and tapping on the rusty exterior. He encouraged those little birds one at a time to find their way out through the door and to fly away. And, and that they did. One by one, they hopped out and flew away. Well, now the preacher had told a story that explained the empty birdcage beside the pulpit. But then he went on to tell what at first seemed like a separate, different story. About how once upon a time Jesus and the devil had engaged in a negotiation. Satan had boasted, they were talking one day, of how he had set a trap in Eden's garden and caught himself a world full of people. Hmm, Jesus said, so you caught a world full of people. Well, what are you going to do with all those people you caught in your cage? Well, the devil didn't hesitate. He knew. He said, I'm going to play with them. I'm going to tease them. I'm going to have fun with them. I'm going to make them marry and divorce and fight and kill each other. I'm going to teach them to throw bombs at each other. I'm going to have fun with them. Jesus said, well... You can't have fun with them forever. When you get tired of playing with those people, what are you going to do with them then? Huh. Satan said, no, they're no good. 
They're no good. I'm gonna I'm gonna kill them. I'm gonna I'm gonna destroy them. They're no good anyway. They're only good for a little while, and then I'm just gonna kill them, get rid of them. Well, that didn't surprise Jesus too much, and he finally asked, Well, how much do you want for your world full of people? Well, Satan was kind of catching on now, and he said, You can't be serious. If I sell them to you, uh, you don't you can't imagine what will happen. And Jesus, they're no good. Remember, I told you, if if I if if I sell them to you, they'll just spit on you, they'll hate you, they'll hit you, they'll beat you, they'll drive nails into you. Jesus, these people are no good. You don't want them. Jesus persisted, how much? And with a cold eye, as cold as you can imagine, Satan looked back at him and said, all of your tears and all of your blood. And Jesus took the cage and paid the price and opened the door. You see, that's the story of Easter. That's the story that starts at the beginning of time in the Garden of Eden, when people turned away from God. And God said, when you sin, you will surely die. But in almost the same breath, he talked about how he would send someone who would crush evil. The story has unfolded down through human history for a lot of years now. A pivotal point came, the Garden of Eden, when people sinned pivotal point came when Noah built an ark, saved himself and his family from a flood. But evil persisted. It didn't go away until a pivotal point came when Abraham responded to God's invitation and entered into covenant with God. And even in that covenant ceremony, God recognized that that Abraham and all of us would need help. And so God put Abraham to the side and conducted that covenant ceremony on his own. And again promised that one day he would send help that would deliver us from evil. Story unfolds with the people of God, and you probably are familiar with that. It unfolds with with Abraham and his son Isaac. It unfolds with a famine that was devastating the whole area, but by the mercy of God, He had arranged to have Joseph go to Egypt and get ready to provide food for the world as they knew it. And his family came to Egypt in search of food, and he welcomed them, and they moved their whole tribe to Egypt, and they lived there in the land of Egypt and did so well. Until a Pharaoh came along that enslaved them, and then God, some years later, said, It's time, and he sent Moses, and Moses said to Pharaoh, let my people go. And over a process of plagues and all kinds of ins and outs with Pharaoh, God finally delivered his people out of Egypt. It's why we celebrate Passover. It's why people were so hopeful and Jesus came in on Palm Sunday because Passover was at hand and they thought God was sending a deliverer. Here it is, Passover, we celebrate deliverance. God is sending a deliverer. And he was, but it was different than they expected. But in Egypt, they prepared that Passover meal and they killed the lamb and they sprinkled the blood on the doorpost and it protected them from the death that sent shudders of grief across the land of Egypt. 
resulted in the Egyptians saying, go, get out of here, go worship your God. And God led them across the Red Sea to Mount Sinai where they discovered the law. God told them, here's how we are to get along, you with me, and here's what I expect. And it was a rocky beginning, but they persisted. More importantly, God persisted. And they went on to follow him all the way through the wilderness of faithlessness. Forty years they wandered in the wilderness because they refused to trust God and to go into the land he promised. But finally, the people who did not trust him had all died and a new generation was there and they followed Joshua into the promised land. God that led them to take possession of the land he had given them and preserved for them. It's quite an interesting story. They, they finally liberate the land for God and his people. And they begin to live there. They have a king named Saul and another king named David who was the high point of everything. And God used that time and the kingdom to promise that a new king would come one day, like David, because they had a lot of bad kings after David, and a lot of difficult days, including exile, where they were far from God, and God gave the city, the holy city of Jerusalem, over to a foreign invader, and away they went. But in the process of time, God fulfilled all of his promises. You see, God keeps his promises, and resurrection validates that God keeps his promises. Because with the coming of Jesus and with Jesus' faithfulness to God, willingness to become sin for us, going to the cross and dying, and then going to the grave for three days, and then coming out victoriously on Sunday, he validates everything God has said. Everything God promised is now validated in the person of Jesus. And that's the reason that we can come to him and we can have confidence and find freedom. We can walk through that open door. And I suggested that some of us carry in our lives some painful experiences that we have not really ever fully resolved. And I want to invite you this Easter to give yourself to Jesus. Maybe some of those hurtful things have kept you away. Maybe it's been unbelief or an unwillingness to Do what you know you must do. But the door is open, and you can walk out into freedom, into wholeness of life. Jesus comes to forgive us of what we've done and to heal the hurts that life has brought our way. And just like Mary went to the tomb and found the source, the site of her hopelessness and despair, her deep pain, God will take you to the site of that pain in your life And he will bring resurrection to you if you'll trust him. He will invite you to unseal that painful stuff and let him handle it. You see, we were never created to handle that stuff ourselves. That's the point of the cross. Jesus went to the cross to die for the sins we commit and for the sins committed against us. And sometimes it's those sins committed against us that we are so reluctant to turn over to him. But you weren't created to handle those. He was. And that's why Jesus came. So that he could become sin for us and open the door so that all of the hurts that we have sealed away in our lives, afraid to let them out, he will open up and heal and make whole and make us new. 
I don't mean to be singing the same song, but because he lives, we can face tomorrow. Because he lives, all fear is gone. Because he lives, I know who holds the future. Then life is worth the living just because he lives. If there was ever a truth that we need for our day, it is that one. Now, I just want to invite you. The door is open. The door to the cage that has kept you down is open. And the resurrected Christ is inviting you, saying your name today. Come out and walk with me. I hope you will. I'm Pastor Rick.